Hey, hello everyone, John Simons here, PPG Grandpa. Today's guest is Will Liddy. He has been on the paramotor scene for a couple years. I'm gonna let him tell you what's going on, but let me give you a quick rundown. He sold everything he had, bought a $700 car, drove from Wisconsin to Illinois so he could get training, lived in his car, and every night for six hours, he would learn, he, he would read, expanding his knowledge on equipment, techniques, and the people inside the sport. He's also appeared in the Ask Aviator live stream, and he also worked at Aviator. So anyway, let's get on with the show. Will, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? Hi, Sean, doing well. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. All right. Um, I just turned uh, 20 about nine days ago, and uh, I've been involved in the paramotor world since I was 18. Um, it started, I, I don't exactly remember which YouTube video it was that, that got me into it, but uh, I, I think about five videos deep, I was already committed to selling everything I had. <laughs> so I... Um, uh, I was into flipping cars at the time, so I uh, sold all the cars that I had, uh, two of them, and uh, used that and the money I had uh, kind of saved up in the bank, booked my training, um, and uh, bought a $700 car and drove from New York to Illinois and slept in that for a week while I learned to fly uh, paramotors. And um, after that, that just kind of kicked off a big, huge journey, a lot of traveling around the country, uh, a lot of crazy adventures. Uh, and uh i've in the in the two years that i've been doing it i've i've had it's amazing how fast life moves in this scene i mean it's <laughs> i've done things that I, I never would have pictured it sounds like you are pretty dedicated to ppg i mean you slept in your car you sold everything that you had just so I you do that pretty often <laughs> yeah yeah i uh it is essentially my entire life at this point yeah and I, I want to make it even more so. I'm looking to uh, to get started at instructing at this point. I've, I've got um, uh, an, an arrangement with somebody to go and uh, work as a uh, instructor assistant here this summer. So I'm, I'm always looking to bank more experience, start getting some more credentials and ratings under my belt, and uh, start giving back more into the sport. All right, so there are a bunch of questions out there that newbies ask all the time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you some basic questions, and you can just answer them the best you can. Like, uh, I've heard this a lot. What kind of helmet do I need, and what kind of comms do I need? Well, so you, helmets are great because there's an entire spectrum. You can be very bare bones or you can get something that's you know an enbolo or similar that's you know over a thousand dollars me personally my setup i built for about sixty dollars i'd say and what it consists of is it's a bell skateboard helmet and originally i had um 3m peltor earmuffs um for ear protection uh what i've since gone to is on amazon there's um uh ear protection that's rated for uh, a shooting range and it's got bluetooth built into it so it connects to your phone uh and it's also got a uh a mic so that's what i do personally with uh with my brand is we just call each other on the cell phone and uh you've got bluetooth comms that way you can use it to listen to music and uh, it's a nice bare bones solution 
Um, what a lot of other people use is the Cena's, which is basically built for the motorcycle community. Um, for, for, uh, and that's very similar to Bluetooth as well. Um, definitely a little bit more of a preferable solution. As to needing comms, that's, uh, I mean, you, I wouldn't say that you do um, until you start flying into, uh, most of most of the time, of course, 99% of the time, we're in uh, GNE airspace, but uh, if you were to get permission to go into controlled airspace, uh, you would need um, an avband radio in order to talk. So how much are, so, so you're saying that Helmets vary from sixty dollars all the way to like a thousand or more, correct? Yeah, yeah, quite a range. So it's pretty much whatever you want to do. I mean, there's no correct answer for what kind of helmet I should get. Yeah, uh, you want to get something that offers you some some good protection, I would say. But uh, the the nature of our sport is, if you are to take a high impact, most of the time it's not. You want something to, I mean, there's, there's been injuries and even fatalities from head impacts. So I, I never go out without a helmet, but, uh, when I was first, when I was first starting off, I was using a, a full face motorcycle helmet, um, which was incredibly bulky, incredibly heavy and, uh, restricts my field of view. So I think that the, um, uh, skateboard helmet is a nice medium cause it's still got that impact foam. It's, I mean, it's, it's made to take a header onto concrete and leave your skull intact um so you've still got that uh that aspect of protection but it's a lot more lightweight and a lot less restrictive and very easy to modify uh, with cameras and communications etc i also have earplugs that i put in i put in earplugs and then i put on my normal um what do you call those what do you call those on the on the um, helmet the things that go over your ears uh they're just called earmuffs uh if you're I think some people use Peltors as just a generic name. That's a that's a 3M brand. It's kind of like calling it an issue with Bluetooth. Okay, yeah, the Peltor. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. So I've noticed that I need to have more hearing protection. I, I need to have I need to have the uh, those little red things that you go in your ears, like the normal hearing protection, and then the earmuffs over on top, and I feel pretty good. Is that is that about how you are too? Yeah, I, I find if I've got a good set, like like the, the Pelotors are rated for however many decibels, um, as long as you have a good pair of, of earmuffs that's actually rated ear protection, uh, I, I think that's enough. Um, definitely ear protection is a, a pretty critical item, though. I, I don't think people really fully understand how damaging sound is over time, but uh, these, these machines are definitely loud enough to do it. Exactly. Um, now, there's a lot of people that are asking about apps. I mean, most people understand that Windy is like a really good one. Um, but what are some other ones that you use and and why would you use them? So there's all different kinds of apps. Um, the ones that I use besides Windy on a daily basis, uh, there's one called UAV Forecast, which is really great because that one you open it up and it just tells you at a glance a lot of the information you want to know. It actually has... Uh, a, a kind of a bar at the top that says good to fly or not good to fly and you can set the parameters such as wind speed direction uh visibility etc that also uh tells you winds aloft a lot of people like to use ryancarlton.com but this thing uh just gives you everything kind of in one spot uh, and it also has it's not a sectional chart but it gives you a map 
um, that displays airports of all sizes, uh, heliports, and it also uh, displays TFRs and NOTAMs, which is really important. Now, a lot of people never check NOTAMs or, or TFRs before they fly, so having that is, uh, is really nice. It, it makes it basically to where there's no excuse not to. Now, I use Sky Fly High. Have you used that before? I, I personally haven't, no. Okay. Um, it seems like it has a lot of good stuff. I mean, I think it's another $7 and you get all the different maps and stuff that are included with it. So it uh, seems to be pretty good. So what are some other ones that are good for you that you that you enjoy? When I'm, when I'm on cross country, I use PPGPS. Um, I, I got that too. I bought the pro version of it. Um, and that's, that's nice. I really like something that displays your track. And, and it, when I, before I got that, I was basically just using Google Maps, but uh, it's pretty difficult to, to navigate using Google Maps because it's obviously not made for something that flies. Um, but PPGPS, it's, it's really nice to be able to set a waypoint, especially um, when, you, when you get up and uh, you've got like a, an overcast and you've got maybe two miles visibility. If you're doing a 40-mile cross-country, uh, it can be very nice to have that. Um, like yesterday, the, I went on a flight with my local crew yesterday where, um, we were probably, I'd say about five to 600 feet above the ground. And the visibility was probably about two miles. We were in uh, class G airspace, of course. Um, visibility is probably about two miles and, um, you can navigate by sense of direction only so much. Uh, and I, I didn't know the area. I was flying from an unfamiliar airport. Uh, so it was, uh, it would have been nice to have just something there to uh, um, give you vectors back to your destination. So that's that's a, a useful one. That also that's got all kinds of features too. It's got like a fuel calculator built into it, um, where you can kind of uh, it's a rough estimate, uh, but you can input what your your efficiency is and how many gallons you're starting with, and I guess based on the time, it'll estimate how much fuel you have remaining. So that's a cool feature. Uh, and besides that, I use, um, before every time I go up, I check uh, Doppler radar. And I just use my local weather app from Channel 13 here in Rochester. Um, and uh, that, uh, of course, just gives me a, a Doppler radar so I can see if there's any cells moving my way. Um, and even if, uh, even if the cells don't pass me directly they can still kick up a gust front so it's 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 really nice to be able to uh to visualize that awesome now are there any magazine subscriptions that uh, would be really good to get yeah um one is when you have a uh a membership active um you can also get a subscription to uh powered sport flying magazine which uh is really good it's uh that's that's made by jeff Gowen, um as well as others a lot of good articles in there and what i particularly enjoy each time is there's a uh, there's always a, a piece on safety in there sometimes it's accident reports or sometimes it's just uh advice on how to keep yourself safe um so i, I always find that very valuable i read that every time uh, and there's um been articles reporting on on big fly-ins that have gone on and it's not just for paramotors too it's for all ultralights um, so you can you find pieces in there on, on some of the fixed wing ultralights, powered parachutes, gyros, etc. So it's really interesting. I mean, it's 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 more of a magazine just for ultralight enthusiasts in general, but uh, a, a large part of it is is for powered paragliding. Now you know everyone wants to know what's the cheapest way they can get into this sport, and what's the cheapest amount of or, or the least amount of money 
that they have to spend to get into the sport. What do you think that would be? Well, my default answer is you can basically get in to an extent as cheap as you want to, but the cheaper you go in initially, the more money you'll end up spending over the long term. I've heard that all the time. Why, yeah. why, why do you think that? Well, to give you an example, when I first started, my very first purchase in this sport um, was a 23 or 25-year-old uh, paramotor. It was a Lomwet brand paramotor with a solo 210 engine. Had no prop, had no gas tank, and uh, the frame was uh, more than a little tweaked. Um, that was that was $1,000 that I basically just kind of... I was able to make it back, but that was basically lighting a thousand dollars on fire when I could have put that towards training, which is the first big purchase you should be making. Um, that's, that's really what you should be putting your money towards. Uh, and as far as gear goes, um, I've seen people get incredible deals. I've got a friend locally here that bought a, a running motor and a flyable wing for, uh, for $1,500. Holy smokes. Yeah. Now, see, what you have to understand is that's pretty rare. You're you're most likely not going to get any kind of, of good equipment for that kind of money. Right. Um, the motors, uh, it, it can really be hit or miss. I mean, sometimes you'll find a motor for cheap that runs amazing, and it'll give you hundreds of hours of... <laughs> One thing, of course, to keep in mind is the cheaper motors are likely going to be old, which equates to heavy. Uh, so if that's an issue for you, it's it's... The, the motors that are out there now are incredible as to how lightweight they are. I mean, we're talking, some of them are under 40 pounds, which is incredible. I mean, the, the gear that I fly right now, my, my motor is from 2006 and my wing is from 2011. And for those two together, I've paid uh, 2,500 bucks. Um, I bought them separately, but you know, total together is $2,500. Um, but that I've spent many thousands in, in this sport so far over the over the two years that I've been in it. I mean, a lot of times you'll hear a number that it's eight to ten thousand dollars worth of gear and uh, two thousand to thirty five hundred for training. Um, <laughs> you can get initially a lot cheaper than that, but if you'll never really stop spending. I mean, I mean, especially if you if you really go deep into the sport and you become enthusiastic about it, you'll you'll be spending a lot of money. Yeah, my, my very first motor that I got was 3000 and then I put 500 into it for a maintenance kit and a carburetor, and it works like a champ. And then I decided to get a different frame and put that motor on the new frame, so, you know, it's pretty much a, a, to a whole new pair of motor uh, that I got, which is pretty cool. Um, how about airspace? What, what's, what's up with this airspace? It sounds like there's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So there's a whole alphabet of airspace. Can you, uh, can, can you dumb that down just a wee bit? Sure. The great thing about airspace is the vast majority of the country is either Class G or Class E, which is two pieces of airspace that we can fly in with basically no restrictions. Um, when you step up... In, in G airspace, you need a mile of visibility and you need to stay clear of the clouds. That's about it. I mean, there's there's other, obviously you have to follow uh, restrictions that are in place, um, just being ultralights. Um, so in training, I, I mean, if you've got a, a good training setup, they should be teaching how to read a sectional chart and they should be going over uh, FAR 103 and making sure that you're familiar with those. 
Um, but uh, the A, B, C, and uh, and D air spaces, those are all restricted. Uh, and most of the time that has to do with, uh, with airports. Class A airspace is anything above 18,000 feet, um, which is where the airliners are flying. That's all, that's all IFR, totally restricted to us. Um, of course, you can't really breathe up there anyway, so it's not, not that huge of a deal. Class B is like a, a big international airport. Um, and those are the ones, uh, what a lot of people, I, I think a lot of people miss out uh, just by virtue of not knowing how to read the sectional chart because um, the Class B airspace, uh, if you were to visualize it in 3D, it looks like an upside-down wedding cake. Um, so there's actually concentric layers of airspace um, called shelves, and uh, you can fly under the shelves. There's just an altitude restriction there. Uh, the problem with that, though, is um, most of the time, since Class Bs are, are uh, large international airports, the uh, shelves will be over congested areas, so um, that's that's out of the question in that case. But uh, if you know how to take advantage of, uh, or, or if you have the knowledge to uh, to really know where you can go and where you can't go, there's there's a lot of places that are open to you. I, I'd say easily 95% of the country by total land area is flyable here. All right, so how about as far as like transporting the paramotor? What what is a good way of doing that? Well, there's uh, there's quite a few ways. Me personally, I have a sedan, just a normal car, like I, I'd say most people out there have. Um, I just put a trailer hitch on it, and I use a uh, fifty dollar cargo rack I got at Harbor Freight. Um, and if I'm just going short hops, I'll just throw the motor on there. Um, but one thing I have noticed is that is a ton of extra drag on the car and I get terrible fuel economy. So if I'm going anywhere over 10 miles, I'll just disassemble the motor, um, put it inside the car. Um, and, uh, if I have the opportunity to buy a pickup truck, I'll just throw it in the back of the truck. Uh, either option works really good. All right. Um, so disassemble it, put it on a trailer or a cargo rack. Yeah. Any, any one of those works. Uh, I've seen people that, hop on a skateboard and uh run the motor on their back uh, that's an option too <laughs> hey, hey there's this is what the podcast is all about options yeah all right so is there any type of requirements like a license or anything like that that's required uh, and how about insurance and and uh tags i've heard of you know tail numbers do we need any of that for for paramotoring uh, nope. Currently under uh, under FAR Part 103, we don't need any of that. No license, no insurance, no end number, uh, which is really great. That's a big part of this of the freedom that our sport provides. Um, and uh, as long as your aircraft uh, falls under Part 103, which I believe is 55 knots or under calibrated airspeed, under 250 pounds, and uh, with a gas capacity of under five gallons, I, I'm I, I know there's more, but off the top of my head, that's that's a Part 103 aircraft. Oh, and single occupant only, um, which all of which is a paramotor. Um, uh, what's funny is you can uh, you can see like powered parachutes, which look very similar to uh, to paramotor trikes. Those actually require a uh, a light sport um, license, and they're N numbered as well. So, uh, I mean, they don't look much different, but uh, it's a different class of aircraft. But nope, for us under part 103 no license 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, what kind of training is required then? Well, you technically don't require any training either. Um, you would just be very heavily advised to, to get some because you are, of course, strapping a spinning death blade onto your back and running into the sky with a piece of cloth. So I think anybody in their right mind should probably go ahead and get that training. It's uh, your, your life is worth every bit of $2,000. I, I totally agree with you. All right. So with five gallons, how far can paramotors go? Well, um, that depends on a lot of factors. One is what winds you're facing. Uh, and two is um, what wing you've got. And three is how thirsty your motor is. And I, I would say that's in descending order of importance. Uh, if you've got, um, you know, if your, your airspeed of your glider is 25 miles an hour and you get up 800 feet and you're facing a 25 mile an hour headwind, you're going nowhere. So you'll, you'll basically be hovering in one spot for forever. Um, conversely, if you were to go up to 10,000 feet and get yourself a 50 mile an hour tailwind, you'll be covering ground like crazy. Um, because if you've got that same 20 mile an hour airspeed, you're now traveling 70 miles an hour. Um, and I've heard of people that can go 250 miles on a single tank on one leg of a trip, uh, which is, which is really good. But again, it's highly dependent on the conditions and, uh, there's, there's wings out there that are incredibly efficient. I mean, I, I, I went from, uh, I went from a beginner wing to a uh, to a, a semi competition wing, and I run at least two thousand RPM last at cruise. So, I mean, that's that's another uh, that's another important factor. But I'd say, on average, if you're going up on a calm night, uh, you you'd never. <laughs> I have I haven't heard of anybody foot launching with five gallons. That is like a crazy amount of weight. Um, you would have to have a, a back far stronger than mine in order to do that. But I've, I've launched with three and a half to four before, and uh, I've been able to fly for two, two and a half hours easy on that. So we talked about how much they weigh under 250 pounds to be under the FAR 103 uh, ultralight, but how much can they carry and how long does it actually take to learn how to fly? All right. Well, there's uh, I, I've never heard of any paramotor that's uh, over a hundred pounds. Well, no, that's not that's not true. I have, but uh, just about ninety nine percent of paramotors out there uh, uh, today, I'd say, are under seventy. Um, definitely nothing approaching two hundred and fifty. That's uh, that's just the FAA's rule. Um, but I'd say on average, your average paramotor out there is about fifty five pounds dry weight nowadays. Um, as far as uh, instruction, what was your second question? I'm well, sorry. How much could they carry? Like, I jump in and I want to take some luggage with me, you know, like the Icarus race, you know? So, so how much weight can one of these things carry? I mean, can it carry 100 pounds, 500 pounds, 1,000 pounds? What, what can they carry? That's pretty highly dependent more on the wing than the motor. Um, if you've got a larger wing, you can... Obviously, there's there's people that can do tandems, two fully grown adults. Uh, there's people that are launching wheeled carts that are heavy plus their body weight, and typically the uh, the heavier guys are the ones that tend to launch on wheels. So, uh, 500 pounds is definitely not out of the question. Um, you're not going to be able to launch 500 pounds with an 80 cc motor, but uh, 
I've seen people regularly do uh, wheeled tandems with the Moster 185, which is just about the most common engine out there. Um, so more dependent on your uh, on your wing than your motor, but uh, they're they're capable of handling some serious weight. And how long does it take to learn how to fly? So on average, the courses are uh, at least a week and up to 14 days. Um, I'd say that's what it takes to really fly with confidence uh, and, and be able to effectively handle everything yourself without instructor supervision. Um, you're usually soloing on day three or four on, on most courses that I've seen. Um, for me, I believe it was day three. Uh, and if you've, if you've got a good course, those three days have been filled with entirely ground handling, learning how to control the wing, and uh, some sort of flight experience before that, uh, either a tandem or, uh, or towing. I find towing to be the best. Um, it's, a, it's a very safe, very easy, uh, very quick process to, to learn how to control the glider in the air uh, before you strap that expensive motor onto your back. Speaking about motors, what happens if the motor fails when you're, when you're flying up in the air? Do, you, do we just fall down to the ground and die or what? Nope. Uh, that's, that has happened to me more times than I can count. And, uh, I have never been injured and I have never broken gear from a motor out landing. Um, if you are one thing that we constantly try to drill into people's heads is when you're flying, you have an out in mind at all times. Uh, and what I mean by that is you wouldn't want to fly at low altitude over a huge forest because you are depending on a two stroke engine that's you know, weighs 25 pounds and is pumping out, you know, 20 horsepower or something crazy like that. They're incredibly high strung. They're very prone to breakage. They do break. And, uh, it is a completely non-event, uh, if, if you are doing your due diligence as to having an outlanding in mind. Now that is the case. Most of the time, if you are to have a, uh, a motor out right after launch, then that can be a bit more severe. Um, because if you have a sudden loss of power, you get a surge uh, with the wing. Um, so if, if you're on the spot and you're constantly expecting the motor to fail at all times and you're able to catch that surge, you can land safely even in that instance too. Uh, that's happened to me before. I've, I know people that that's happened to, and none of us have ever been hurt by it. Well, uh, but it would be well, that's, very, that's good. Possible too. Uh, you can like like everything is something you have to be anticipating now i know somebody asked how fast can you go and you already told us that the fastest that we can go is 55 knots legally correct that's right yeah now does that mean if i have a hundred mile an hour tailwind and i'm doing a hundred miles an hour is that illegal no because that 55 knots is airspeed airspeed and ground speed are two different things um, I, I touched earlier on if, you, if you're facing a headwind, you can have zero ground speed, which is hovering in essence. Or if the uh, if your headwind exceeds the airspeed of your wing, you'll actually start flying backwards, which can be a little trippy. <laughs> um, but no, the, the 55 knots is calibrated airspeed only. Um, and uh, the way I like to, whenever I'm talking about air and, and trying to explain how that works, I always try and use um, uh, water. As, as my analogy because they behave very similarly um, and if you are to take a boat uh, and try and go upstream or paddle your kayak upstream it's a lot harder even though your kayak is actually still moving 
in the water at the same speed, the water is opposing you. And it's the same thing when you go up in the air. You're, you're always, unless the wing is stalled, you're always flying at that airspeed or trim speed, we call it. Um, so, like I said, if you've got a wing that's 25 miles an hour for, uh, for airspeed, um, if you've got zero wind, you're going to be flying 25 miles an hour across the ground at all times. If you've got a 20-mile-an-hour headwind, you're going to be flying five miles across the ground. And if you've got a 20-mile-an-hour tailwind, you'll be flying 45 miles an hour across the ground. So that really illustrates the importance of uh, wind direction, especially if you're planning a cross-country or something. That's really interesting. So these things take reg- regular unleaded, or I, do I have to go to the airport and get aviation gas? What do, what do these things take as far as gas? Uh, yep. So what I always recommend is anything above 90 octane, and I try and avoid ethanol. That's that's my recommendation. I know people that run um, 100 low lead aviation fuel. I know people that run 87 octane with ethanol. Um, the best bet on that one is to consult your manufacturer of the motor and, and see what they recommend but me personally i try and shy away from the ethanol and i try and give myself a high enough octane ratio because uh, these motors are high compression they're usually about 11 to 1 compression ratio um, and if you've got too low of an octane you'll start getting detonation which is not good oh what, what, what's detonation uh, that is when the motor or when the gasoline so you know how a diesel engine works the diesel engine has no spark plug it ignites by compression only because when air compresses it heats up um that kind of happens with uh with the gasoline engines um and uh the combination of the heat the residual heat from the motor and the compression of the motor pre-ignites the gasoline and uh when you've got an explosion in essence opposing the piston when it's still rising in the bore uh, the the explosion is meant to happen when the piston is at top dead center because then it's ready to go down again um, when you've got that explosion happening while the piston is still rising, that can be super detrimental, uh, especially to the uh, to the wrist pin bearing. Um, I, in the dirt bike world, we used to have that all the time, and uh, I've, the effects of it are not very good, and I've seen motors blow up from it before. It also runs a lot hotter. I don't like motors blowing up on my back. Um, so there's ways of cooling them, and I know that you have to put two-cycle oil. What kind of two-cycle oil do you recommend? So the, I'd say the most popular is Amsoil products, uh, whether that's Sabre or Dominator. Me personally, uh, just as a carryover from my dirt bike days, I run Klotz Super Technoplate, which is a 20% castor oil blend. Um, I've always had good luck with that. Uh, but I would say, again, consult either your dealer or the manufacturer and uh, just follow their recommendations. And not only is that because perhaps it'll run the best for that particular engine, but uh, – that'll give you um, much better standing when it comes to warranty is running their recommended oil. Okay. So I probably shouldn't go and get the cheapest gas and put in Walmart's two cycle oil. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. In your, uh, in your $8,000 investment. Yeah. That's, that's what I always say when, when people tell me that they intend to run cheap gas or cheap oils. Like you just, you just dropped, eight grand on something and now you can't pay an extra dollar per gallon at the pump and it's you're only paying for four gallons anyway and uh the oil is like maybe fifteen dollars for a for a quart or a pint i'm sorry quart um 
it's it really does not amount to much i i spend hardly anything on uh, on fuel and i burn probably close to five gallons a week on these i have a i have a vp um gas can five gallons i fill it up on monday it's usually gone by saturday so uh, and to fill that thing up it only it only takes about 12 bucks how long should i keep the gas in my gas tank if i don't do a lot of flying um <laughs> interestingly enough i always said um about a uh, a week to two weeks is um about my limit for gas the manual of my paramotor says 72 hours which i think is a little bit excessive did you say 72 hours that's correct yeah uh, I've definitely run uh, run gas that's a lot older than 72 hours, and I've never had an issue. Uh, I think I suspect that's maybe a bit of a CYA thing on the on the part of the manufacturer. Right. Um, uh, I, I think that's that's a little bit way too conservative of a, of an estimate, but I would say two weeks, uh, particularly if you're running gas with ethanol. Um, that is that's one of the reasons why I try and shy away from ethanol is because it's hygr- uh, hygroscopic, which means it attracts water um and that's not a problem as much if you're keeping it in an airtight container like uh my my gas can is totally airtight but uh the fuel tanks of the paramotors aren't um and so if you've got ethanol fuel in there for a while you'll open up your carburetor and find it full of (laughs) when it gets really bad it looks like rock candy It, it crystallizes and causes all kinds of corrosion and uh for a carburetor that uh consists of two rubber diaphragms that are supposed to be pumping fuel from you know a foot below these carburetors are made for chainsaws people don't really understand they're they're not purpose designed for aviation and they're not designed to really suck fuel through three feet of fuel line from a from a tank that's a foot below the, the carburetor so they're already overworked as it is, and they're also very highly sensitive. I mean, a quarter turn of the high screw leading it out will blow up your engine. Um, and uh, the unfortunate thing is, uh, the most common carburetor issue causes fuel starvation, which causes your motor to run way too hot. Um, anything from nearing the fuel line to the diaphragms not working correctly and not pumping fuel adequately, to a clogged up uh, filter screen, any of that uh, will, will cause a lean condition, which is what we try and avoid at all costs. Would it be better to run like 87 non-ethanol gas um, opposed to maybe 93 with ethanol? Well, if you're going to be using all of that 93 that flight, I would say go with the higher octane, but if you plan on keeping it for a little while, I would, I would take the hit on octane. To, to not have that ethanol in there, yeah. Okay, because that's that's kind of what I'm doing because it kind of seems like it's up in the air when I'm able to fly or not. Right. All right. All right. So I've also had somebody ask me, do you get motion sickness or dizzy when flying a paramotor? Me, personally, uh, I have never experienced either one of those. Uh, if you're somebody who's prone to, like, getting vertigo, uh, maybe that might be an issue. Um, which is why I always try and recommend people to go up tandem, uh, especially if, if they're kind of on the fence or they're not entirely sure if that's something that they're physically going to be able to, to cope with. 
I always recommend doing a tandem just uh, to kind of make sure that you're good for it. But no, I, even in even in rough air, I've never had any kind of motion sickness or dizziness. The the one thing I will say for uh, for when you start getting a little bit more advanced is um, if you've never experienced G force before, when you do your first couple of big wing overs, it's it's really an interesting feeling. Um, it's sort of uh, tunnel vision isn't really the right word, but it sort of feels like your field of vision gets sort of pulled back a little bit, like your eyes are being pushed into your head. Uh, it's, it's really an interesting feeling. Um, but that, that's the most abnormal thing I've ever felt uh, from paramotoring. No, no, no sort of motion sickness. All right. With, with that weird thing that you just said, uh, somebody else also asked, how dangerous is power paragliding? Uh, well, as with many other things, it, it is about as safe as you make it. Uh, you can fly in the most perfect conditions. You can be incredibly conservative with your decision making. You cannot make any steep maneuvers, uh, and you'll probably never run into an issue. Um, but for those among us that uh, have a little bit of a daredevil streak, it can definitely get pretty dangerous, and uh, it can it can sneak up on you. Which is why I always preach that complacency kills. Um, it can be very easy to just, you know, grab it out of the garage, not do any kind of pre-flight, run out there because you want to hit the, the good wind and go out there and cut it up with a bunch of steep maneuvers. But eventually it will catch up to you. Um, so there's there's a sliding scale of, of, uh, of skill and risk, you know, and you want to you want to keep them in equilibrium all the time. There's a uh, there's an expression I heard one time. Uh, it's called the two bucket theory. You have a bucket of skill and a bucket of luck, and uh, the objective is to fill your bucket of skill before the bucket of luck runs out. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, I think that's that's pretty accurate. Uh, everybody, I mean, especially when you're when you're first starting out, I, I don't care what anybody says. I mean, we all we all have situations where we luck out. You know, I, I mean, there, there's there's been times where I've been up in trashy air. And, uh, I, at the time I didn't really have the skills to, to active pilot and, uh, and, uh, cope with that. And I was like, man, you know, when I get my feet back on the ground again, safe, I'm like, man, I, I really lucked out that time. But what's great is, um, I, I can learn from those experiences. You know, I, I know what my limits are and, uh, I'm not so eager to push them anymore. So let's say that somebody wants to get up with you. Do you have any social media out there that people can go check out? Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, super active on the Facebook Paramotor Group. Uh, besides that, I'm uh, one of the moderators over at uh, subreddit Paramotor, so I'm all over there all the time. Uh, that's that's basically what, what I do all the time is answer questions just like this. Uh, that's what I enjoy doing. Uh, and to my Instagram, which is pretty mediocre uh but uh, that's uh i go by dust devil uh with two underscores on either side and that's if you find me on facebook all the all the links are on there well i'll go ahead and post all the links down below just just send them to me and i'll post them on on this podcast here um see there was something else i was going to ask Oh, I remember. I was going to ask you since you are a moderator of the paramotor reddit group you wouldn't have any problem with me posting this podcast on there, would you? 
Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> cool. I'll go ahead and post that for sure. There's basically <laughs> the one rule over there is, is like, don't be a dick. That's uh, we don't we don't really care if people, you know, post their stuff. It's it's not a not an issue at all. Oh, good. Oh, good. 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 It's, are we are we off? It's just you and me, right? Oh, it will be here in a second. Now, what if I want to take my paramotor someplace? Now, I live in central Arkansas. Let's say I want to go to, oh, go to the Bahamas, you know, and, and do some flying down there. How do I pack up a paramotor and uh, go someplace in a, using an airline? Well, uh, when you're discussing airlines, first off, the wing is no issue. That You just check that. Uh, the motors, then it starts getting a little bit more hairy. You've got two things you have to dodge you have to dodge faa regulations and then you have to dodge the airline itself uh and they're the faa first thing there can be no trace of gas um so you have to be really really careful with how you uh clean out the carburetor and the gas tank i know people that have actually been forced to buy another gas tank so they have one that's perfectly clean and then they fly with that um and then again, there's some airlines that are, are cool with that. And then there's some where there could be no motor parts at all. Um, there's some where they're fine with engines, but only if the engine's never been run before. I mean, there's there's big, huge dance. So you, best bet is to read up on that and uh, pick your airline accordingly. Uh, and then there's, I've, I've heard of people using some loopholes, like uh, they partially disassemble the engine. So then it's only considered parts and no longer a functioning engine. Um, uh, I've, I've never personally had to do it, so I'm, I'm probably not the best authority on that, but that's what I know. That's interesting. Yeah, I heard that people will buy a brand new gas tank and take it with them and disassemble their motor. It just seems to be kind of a hassle. Is there any other way that you can transport your motor someplace? I mean, can you ship it through mail maybe? You can, yeah. Uh, I've I've shipped whole paramotors through uh, through USPS and UPS. Um, somebody online, I, I don't exactly remember who it was or where it was, but they were saying something about Fastenal. How Fastenal offers a shipping service that's like cheaper, and they ship their paramotor with it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, think that, I heard that too. That would be one to look into, but that would be a really interesting solution, I think. So in other words, if you're going to be flying, you might want to get yourself a good car, put a cargo hitch on the back, and just just go. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's what I've always done. I've I've had mine all over the country. Um, actually, uh, we're me and my little crew are going down to Florida uh, end of this uh, or end of February rather. Um, we're gonna have all kinds of crazy adventures, but yeah, that's that's our solution is. Um, there are a couple people flying down, but they're going to be um, giving their motors to the people who are driving, and we're going to take it down for them. So. Now, another thing that people are always asking is, like, how much room do you need to take off for a beginner? Now, is there a certain rule for that? Is there a amount of space? Uh, how does that work? Like a lot of things, also highly dependent on what your conditions are. Uh, I'd say as a beginner, you want basically no obstructions in front of you um and that's twofold a so you don't physically run into them like a, you, you wouldn't want to launch into a uh, or uh, out of a field that's got a bunch of trees at the end and it's a short field where that would be a concern so that's one thing and then the other thing is if you've got wind the trees create rotor and churns the air up and makes it really uh nasty and unstable and that 
performance goes up the higher wind speed you have. Right. Uh, so I would say for a beginner, just about most parks out there that have uh, that have soccer fields, the soccer field itself is usually more than enough room. Uh, that you just want to make sure your uh, path is clear of obstructions. Now you said rotor. There's rotor from trees and stuff, and then there's mechanical rotor or something like that. What is that all about? Rotor uh, or mechanical turbulence, and uh, any any object. I'll use the uh, the water um, analogy again. If you, you know how if you take a flowing river that's got a uh, a rock in the middle, how you get those little eddies and uh, white water behind the rock. That's what air behaves like too, and that'll happen with anything from buildings to trees to hills. Um, so very important to keep that in mind. I mean, a lot of times, like balance uh, from my house, not from the fields we have here, it's kind of in a bowl, which makes it uh, a little bit challenging because you know, like the windsock can be completely dead. I'll take out, and as soon as I climb above, uh, you know. 70 feet all of a sudden I'm getting buffeted by turbulence because it's it's deceptive down here uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind too now how old do you have to be to actually fly a paramotor I heard that kids are doing this and I heard that 90 year olds are doing this is there is is there an age limit yeah no there's there's no age limit on either end um, the youngest I have personally seen and heard of was uh, my instructor uh, his daughter oh hold on Sorry, technical difficulties. I actually dropped the phone. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Yeah, uh, there's no age limit on either end. I've seen kids as young as 12 uh, foot launch, and I saw a really interesting video of a uh, of a guy. I believe he was 88 years old foot launching, which is uh, incredible. That guy, that guy was in great condition. Um, but yeah, no no age limit. Uh, basically, if if you're physically able to do it safely uh there's age is not an object what is physically able to do it what kind of physical requirements do you need to have to be able to foot launch if you can lift and run with about 55 pounds on your back i'd say you're good 55 Um, pounds that's like a big bag of dog food or a big bag of rice how much is 55 pounds uh I'd say a little bit more than your average bag of dog food, but, uh, you know, the standard, uh, if you go to a gym, the, the standard weight plate, uh, the big one is 45 pounds. Pick that up and then add 10 more. That's what your average paramotor weighs. And, that, uh, that's pretty heavy, but putting it on your back, it's not as heavy as just lifting it. Yeah, and I, there's there's motors out there. A lot of it is uh, uh Design too. I mean, I've I've seen motors that are incredibly ergonomic. It doesn't feel like anything, and I've I've seen motors that are actually lighter, but they feel much heavier just because of the way the weight is distributed. Um, they've got the motor kicked way out, so it's leveraging uh, against you and making it feel heavier. Um, and then, of course, the uh, the more gas you add, the gas tank sits low on the frame. On both of them. So uh, that's that's adding to it as well. But uh, the static weight. 55 pounds and of course like i said there's there's units out there now like uh the most common one in 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 my town right now is the parajet maverick adam 80 and that one's like uh 45 pounds or something it's it's crazy light um and when we say 55 pounds we're not talking about running with 55 pounds across uh, a field we're talking about 55 pounds and every step that you take because the wings above your head gets lighter and lighter well, 
when the wing starts building lift, then it, it takes the weight of the motor off your back first, which is actually when a lot of people get into trouble because then they try sitting down and, and they sit too early. Um, but I'd say on any given launch, the weight is only on my back for, for probably about 30 to 45 seconds because I have to put the motor on, stand up, walk over to the wing, clip in, and then uh, I take – after after I inflate the wing and bring it up, I take usually no more than 10 steps before I'm off the ground. That's with proper posture. Um, of course, as a beginner, until you build that muscle memory and, and get that proper posture, usually – I, it can take anywhere up to 25 to 30 steps or strides uh, to where you get off. But uh, yeah, it's the weight is usually not an issue. What's, what, when the weight becomes an issue is when you start getting fatigued from, uh, from multiple attempts. Like if you uh, are, are blowing launches, I, I had a rule back in the day when I was blowing launches where uh, it would be like three strikes. If I, if I, would, if I would fail three in a row, I would sit up and, uh, and take a breather for like 20 minutes because – it's really easy to exert yourself too much and uh and then your legs will give out from under you that's not a good situation to be in yeah i think that's actually what happened to me i i noticed that i was doing a lot of uh, i was doing a lot of bunny hills and practicing and uh when i took my first flight when i came in my legs were kind of jello i think i wore them out way too much so i totally agree with you you definitely need to be careful, you know, make sure that your legs are not jelly beforehand. Another thing that I noticed too is uh, coming in for a landing. I would butt land. <laughs> I can't remember how many times the first five, 10 times I would come in and kind of like bump the cage. But yeah. this, but uh, recently I've heard and I've learned, I, I guess I, I guess I forgot something is to look at the horizon as you're coming in. And then as you're coming down to flare and I, I float in like a butterfly now looking at the horizon. So why, when I look down, it doesn't work. But when I look at the horizon, I do like perfect landings. So object fixation to that. And, uh, if anybody's ever taken a driving course, usually that's touched on too, but, uh, uh object fixation and, uh, and depth perception. Um, so when you're looking off into the distance more, uh, and, and that that is uh, particularly the case uh, if you're landing over snow or anything reflective. You wouldn't be landing over water unless something has gone horribly wrong. But uh, in the wintertime, um, we would land uh, on frozen lakes where it's just glassy white snow everywhere. And uh, it's really, really difficult to get um, depth perception over that. So you have no choice but to look out into the horizon to, to determine how low you are and uh, when's right to flare. Um, I'd say with practice, uh, like I, I don't fixate on any one thing when I'm coming in for a landing. I don't really look at the horizon. I would say I actually am looking at the ground, but usually that's because I'm, I'm over terrain where I can clearly see and I have other objects to reference. Like I've got trees around me so i can i can pretty easily tell how high i am and, and uh when to flare um and another thing that people don't really realize about uh about landing is a lot of these the wings that are safe that people are um uh starting out on the the beginner wings or the ena um they're by nature you know you can't you can't have everything and uh a lot of times to achieve that safety, you have to, you, there's some sacrifice and efficiency. So, um, 
when I stepped up to a uh, to a, a spicier wing, um, my landings improved tremendously because I had so much more energy that I could bleed out and uh, and swoop across the ground. And yeah, I just land like a butterfly now. Um, the beginner wing, I I had landing dialed in. I mean, I I never would bump the cage or anything, but. Uh, it's my opinion that the, the beginner wings can actually be harder to land than the more advanced ones. That's interesting. I would definitely like to touch on the different wings, A, B, C, and what that's all about. But guys, before we continue this, if you would like to be on the podcast here, you can get me at ppggrandpa at gmail.com. Now, if you have a great story or if you want to be interviewed or you have even done an interview, you can send it to me through the email that I just gave you, ppggrandpa at gmail.com. And if you want to see what I've been doing so far, as far as visual, I do have a YouTube channel and that's ppggrandpa.com. How about that? Now, if you have questions, please let us know. We're going to have a bunch of different experts or people that really know what's going on to answer your questions. Now, the ratings of the wing, you just said that the A wings might be difficult. And there's what, A, B, C, D? There's a bunch of yeah. alphabet with wings, too. Just like there is with airspace. It always seems to be alphabet. So when it comes to the wing, what are we actually talking about when we hear A wing? And real quick question before we go into that. I heard that my Roadster 3, it's a B wing. However because it has trimmers and it has tip steering it cannot be considered an a-wing because it has the option of going out of an a so if i kept my trimmers in all the way and i didn't touch the tip steering would that be kind of like i'm flying an a-wing so that, that's really interesting because how that certification process works first thing you have to know is there's several testing houses that do this uh when people are say abc that refers to en there's also uh dgac which um those are both in i, I don't actually know what those acronyms stand for because they're both in uh in foreign languages uh, dgac i believe is german um but uh there's some ratings that are strictly load tests and then there's some where there's actually a test pilot that goes up and does uh various maneuvers uh stalls and and assesses how the wing recovers and there's a set of criteria uh that each wing is um judged on and if any single category uh like let's say you've got uh, a wing where it's rated a in nine out of ten categories and rated b in one out of ten categories that still becomes a b wing so a lot of wings out there that are are people say oh this is an enb a lot of times they're they're still really safe the universal is one the spider and roadster is another uh those are all very safe and uh pretty pretty good for beginners uh i'd say the spider and roadster um from what i've seen uh that's that's good for anybody that's got you know more than 10 flights uh a lot of times uh like at, at uh aviator for instance uh, you're starting out on the on the mojo, but uh, especially for for some of the more um, gifted students, uh, a lot of times by 10 to 15, 20 flights, they're uh, they're on the roadster or the spider. That was actually my first wing, was yeah, my roadster three. 
And it seemed like a very, you know, very solid. I mean, I it feels like I'm strapped underneath um, my rafters in the garage from the ceiling. I mean, it feels that solid. I can't imagine feeling more safe, even though I'm in a B wing. Yeah, there, there, it is a very reassuring wing. I haven't, I've flown the Spider, which is the the same wing in lightweight fabric. Uh, yeah, it's very reassuring. I was very impressed with that wing. It's, uh, it, it performs very well, and it is, it is very stable and reassuring. I didn't have it out in any turbulence or anything, but uh, uh, it was very reassuring. Lands great too. Retains plenty of energy. Yeah, I've had no problem with it. I, I really like it. I'm I'm just now starting with, you know, pulling out the trimmers a little bit and experimenting with that and maybe doing some uh, using the tip steering. So that's been pretty cool. Man, I can pull that and, and, and do some serious bank. I'm like, wow, this oh, is cool. Yeah, when you uh um the other the other thing that's uh um uh, cool with those is um when you get a little bit more experience and you're ready for it, uh you can tie in two D. Um and uh, that's uh, a lot of people say that's like adding power steering, and uh, yeah, it really does make quite a noticeable effect that 2D steering. Because when you, it gives you a lot more options as to um, how you want it. So like when you when you pull straight down, the tip engages first, so uh, you get a lot more dynamic turn that way. And you can also um, sort of extend your arms outwards, and then engages the main brake only. Um, uh, normal turn that you're used to or you can also pull your arms in sharply towards you and that engages the tip only and uh that gives you you know the the tightest turn bank um and uh, yeah it's it's uh I've, I've flown 2d wings before and they it's it's really nice for sure i really like it not tight in because i can fly the way i want to with my brakes and then i can grab you know with my my finger the uh the tip stirring and then i can you know i can do more with it and then i can let it go and just fly with the brakes and not worry about it but that's another thing that somebody has been asking and i believe it was on a facebook post it just blew up tonight it was about um wing overs should you learn to do wingovers for safety reason, like getting out of the sky, or should you just not learn wingovers and and this acrobatic stuff? I I mean, there's it's certainly not required to to, to do wingovers or any acro. Um, if we have descent methods that are a lot safer than doing wingovers, uh, you can do big ears, and if big uh, big ears is not enough, you can do a beeline stall. Uh, I'd say one that maybe would be worth learning is the uh, asymmetric spiral. Um, flat spirals in this in this sport are very dangerous because uh, there are wings that can lock you into a spiral right. and uh, you'll black out. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the asymmetric spiral is sort of more like an elliptical movement and uh, you can descend very quick but with uh, little to no risk of, of blacking out. So, so that, that, that asymmetric, that's how, how does that work? I mean... What, what does that mean? Uh, it means that you're not spinning consistently around the axis. You're, you're sort of pumping the brake a little bit a, as you're turning, and uh, it makes it so you don't have any sort of uh, constant pressure when you're rotating around. Uh, I guess the best way to describe it would be like if you've got like a piece of paper uh, balanced on top of a pencil. If you're just spinning the piece of paper and there's no elliptical movement to it, um, that would be like doing a flat spin 
And if you've got a little bit of gyration to it, that's like the asymmetric spiral. And it, it, it makes it so you don't get consistent G-force. Um, so you can't uh, black out. So when would be a good time to take an SIV course? I mean, how many hours should you have under your belt before you take one, do you think? Uh, I've heard people say you should wait 100 hours. I've heard people say you should take it right after training. I'm of the mind that... Uh, I, I think sooner is better than later, uh, especially if you're somebody that's going to be out, uh, you know, flying midday or doing things of that nature. Um, but uh, the SIV, it can, they can teach you crazy advanced maneuvers, or it can just be an environment where you can go up and uh, and have a voice on the radio and and uh, pull some collapses and, and do some maneuvers. Uh, and I think having that confidence in knowing how badly the wing wants to fly and and how much that they're capable of taking i think that's uh that's really important to have i haven't done one yet i really want to um, how about how about how about a reserve i know that a lot of schools don't want you to have a reserve when you first fly because you know you get bumpy ears like you get scared and yeah. throw a reserve so that's a real danger i mean uh i didn't get a reserve until i had probably about 125 hours in Oh, um, really? That long? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've never seen a school that uh, sends students up with reserves. And um, that that there is quite a bit of danger. I mean, there, there's videos out there of people getting into some sort of situation, panicking and throwing the reserve, and then the wing inflates right before the reserve opens, and then they've got a nasty situation on their hands. Yeah. Uh, interesting well man i tell you what we have crested an hour and i dude this was so good i i can't imagine i i there's so much to learn i thought i knew a lot because i read a lot i watched all the youtube videos i went to school i thought i knew a lot until i started talking with you and these other amazing pilots out there and i learned that i don't know nothing well, wait till you get uh, wait till you get Jeff going on here. That's <laughs> I'm uh, I'm really a, a small fry compared to some of the names that you've had on here. So that's uh, that'll be that'll be really fun. I'll be tuning in for that one. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Jeff said that he has a big project this month, so maybe the first of February ish, I'll be able to get him on there. Hopefully by then I'll get this this microphone thing set up and and have some good questions to ask. I'll you know one for sure <laughs> all right well man thank you so much i really appreciate your time you have been uh, an, another wealth of information hopefully a lot of people got a lot out of this podcast if you guys out there want to ask questions we're going to have a ton of people on here we actually have a lineup you wouldn't believe how many people have come uh, that want to be on this podcast we need your questions we need your stories we need you to be on here too so if you want to ppggrandpa at gmail.com and uh and let me know man thanks once again you have a great evening and i'll talk with you soon thanks for having me out have a great one all right all right